Welcome to the Action Research Podcast, somehow the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. Thanks for tuning in. Now, on to your hosts. Hi, everyone. My name is Corey, and I am co-hosting and co-producing today's episode of the Action Research Podcast. Hi, I'm Shikha. I'm also co-hosting and co-producing with Corey. We both are PhD students at McGill. It's nice to be back on this podcast, uh, excited for our listeners and excited for amazing conversations that's going to happen. Let me introduce our guests, Amanda Weger, Dana Wright, Mara Duhurst, Kristen Gessling. So welcome you all. I'm excited to have you all here. Uh, we're going to ask you to introduce yourselves in a second, but... I guess part of why you're here today is, uh, Dana, I had the chance of uh, seeing you at the American Research uh, Education Research Association in 2022 in San Diego, and it was your panel on creative research and arts pedagogy for social justice. Uh, it was super exciting for me because I'm doing my own deep dive into action research and learning about participatory methodologies. I was also starting to kind of work on this podcast and I approached you and I said, it would be really cool if we could talk to you about your work on the podcast and you were just really gracious and said, yes, get in touch. And then when I did, you said, well, we should bring in the whole gang for the book and everyone agreed and that's why we're here. So uh, I'd love for all of you to take a moment to just introduce yourselves and tell our listeners uh, who's with us today. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Kristen Gessling, and I'm really excited to be here. I love that origin story, Corey, because it's it's actually our origin story, too, is Amer the ARA conference, and our collaboration just grew from there. I'm in Philadelphia on the east coast of Turtle Island, and I am recently uh, Director of Participatory Research at Penn State University. Um, in our Philadelphia Center. It's a new role and a new position entirely. So I'm approaching it from a par from a par approach and just kind of building it as I do it. And I'm really excited to be in conversation with all of you today. I can hop in. I'm Dana Wright. And uh, I'm a professor of education at Mills College at Northeastern University in Oakland. And yeah, excited to be here. I have kind of interest in critical par and uh, critical use studies and uh, community organizing and educational policy and wrote a book called Active Learning, Social Justice, Education and Participatory Action Research. And uh, yeah, just was really excited to work with this team uh to uh co-edit this book and happy to talk about it today i'm marit dewhurst i'm a professor of art education at city college of new york in new york city and i also write books on social justice art education on community engagement in the arts on I do a lot of work around anti-racism in museum spaces and out of school learning spaces uh, and I also work a lot with YPAR and working with youth as action researchers, especially in the arts. So 
last night I was with a group of teens who have been slowly chipping away at a project on what's the scene of youth arts access in New York City. And I love these colleagues. So I'm just happy to be here. Hi, I'm Amanda Wager. Um, I'm coming to you from the Comox lands on what is now known as Vancouver Island. I am a Canada Research Chair in Community Engaged Research. Uh, I'm also a professor in education at Vancouver Island University. Um, I'm really happy to be here with all of you and to see my my colleagues that I haven't seen for a while. My work has been uh, largely um, interdis interdisciplinary that includes uh, working with communities, um, using art as advocacy. A lot of it um, stems from using art for language learning or language reawakening uh, with local communities and primarily working with youth, but a lot of ed education with youth uh, with the local communities is intergenerational. So um, it's actually stemmed to working with all ages. Um, and I have continued to learn so much from these wonderful women right here and so happy to see them and, and talk more. Thank you so much for introducing yourself. It's an amazing, you know, opportunity for me and Corey also to learn from this conversation and be a part of this team, even for a short time, but be a part of this team. <laughs> so our next uh, segment is Lightning Round. Lightning Round is like a fun short start episode. It's like warming up before having a uh, conversation uh, where we ask our guests a couple of small fun questions. And the challenge is that you have to respond within like 30 seconds. Okay. I guess so when I was reading the book, I was struck by one of the first things you say in your introduction, which is that uh, things have to move. And we'll talk about that in the context that you wrote it in. But I thought it would be really fun to ask you, what is your favorite way to move right now? My favorite way to move is in water. Swimming, creek jumping, ocean floating, anything in water. So my movement has been wiggling and dancing, and I dance often. I am really into car dancing these days because I have to drive a lot. <laughs> so I've gotten really into the groove in the car. When I'm not having to drive a car far distances, I love cycling. For me, I really like dancing, and I've been doing some dancing with my uh, young daughter, uh, and she has a wiggle dance move, Marit. So, um, I'm really but yeah, um, also uh, taking little short walks or hikes been great, and in the post-shelter-in-place time, uh, that's been a main way I've been connecting with people. Right now with the stroller, uh, often or a backpack with a uh, you know little one in the back, but um, let's say dancing and hiking. Uh, this takes to our next question: What music makes you move? Nineties R and B and hip hop, specifically TLC's "Creep." <laughs> My number one. It's, it's also pretty. It's Empire State of Mind. Oh. Guilty pleasure. Um, and then I would have to say Adele with with my friend Amanda here makes uh, some some scream singing and dancing. I've really been into this song called Good Energy. And it says, good energy, I don't need no negativity. And that's part of my, my car dancing. Um, so many genres, but I would say, uh, well, one is called Shine Your Light by Asa. And she's a Nigerian artist. Um, it's a positive one. 
Um, but the one that also comes to mind is it's called El Nino and it it's by uh, Jojoa. And uh, that's one of the ones I do the dance wiggling with my daughter to. It's her favorite song right now. Um, it's kind of about like climate change, but it's like a upbeat, um, like kind of self-reflective, but they have like a really goofy music video. Um, so it's a serious topic, but they kind of approach it wearing polar bear suits. And I just like their whole quirky style. So that's something I dance to almost every day right now. Nice. Let's throw some questions uh, to all of you more closely related to your work. Um, so for our listeners and a soundbite, if you can, how would you explain YPAR, uh, Youth Participatory Action Research? To me, in PAR projects, researchers are reconceptualizing young people uh, or people uh, who are traditionally viewed as the objects of study uh, to see them as co-researchers in this process. And it's a community-based approach to knowledge production. And it also enables people in the research study to be included as insiders with this specialized localized knowledge and lifts, lifts up the voices of those who've been historically excluded from decisions about their own lives and education, uh, particularly those who've been economically, socially, or politically excluded, and engages them in organizational decision-making, decision program governance, you know, enables them to strengthen the systems that directly impact them. To me, I really think about, you know, the people who are most affected by structural violence or oppressions are the most, uh, have the most expertise from their own experience about what the problem is and creative ways to solve it. And that includes young people. But to me, it's like that direct experience of experiencing the problem gives you that insider knowledge and expertise on how to solve it. So that's to me an important piece of it in terms of widening how we think of who's the expert. And you nailed that. That was really good. I th can I add that you since you invited the building, I think the pieces that always when people ask me to describe it, I don't near it. It's not nearly as eloquent as what Dana offered, but it's it's about power sharing with youth, and it's about if I could make it a T-shirt slogan, it's doing re research with, not about, and that the and the it's a bold with, not a wimpy with. I mean, this is a great transition, I think, coming out of this lightning round, which is just to kind of warm up listeners to some of the kind of key things that we're going to be talking about. You're diving right in. And I just want to, like, pause here to just be like, first of all, this is the first time that we're actually welcoming four guests on this <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, and so this, we wanted to kind of just say foreground that we're going to break this conversation into two episodes, right? So this first episode... We want to do, we want to have this conversation that you just started, which is really looking at some of the kind of key assumptions and misconceptions about doing creative participatory action research for social justice with youth. And that in the next episode, we'll kind of dive a little bit more deep into methodological innovations and also really kind of getting at some of your most favorite uh, methods that you've used along the kind of action research cycle. Uh, from design, data collection, analysis, reflection, in big, bold letters on a page, uh, you all declare that art is a rigorous medium for analyzing, producing, and sharing knowledge. 
thinking of all the guests we've had uh, and the different avenues that people um, and contexts in which they do action research, we want to really pause here and, and ask you, like, what are some of the assumptions or, or misconceptions about art-based action research that kind of guide your work, that frame your book and kind of guide all the projects that you are involved with? One of the things that a lot of people think about when they think, when they consider art, they consider it to be a product. And with arts-based research, it is part of the process um, and it's interwoven into the entire project in different ways. Um, and it is almost like a guide for the facilitators and the youth working together is the, the art is the, the language that they use to work together a lot of the time. And in the end, even if you have a particular youth that didn't necessarily finish their piece of art or they're making some sort of media or whatever, that is not the point of that process. It's about where they did get to and what part they got to and and the different discussions that came up along the way and the different all of the different things that can happen along that journey not necessarily the final piece of dissemination I I love that I mean I think for us all one one of our kind of shared points of alignment is is very much about the emphasis on process and and kind of insinuating that as as a value, not the focus or the product or endpoint. Um, and part of our responsibility maybe as researchers positioned in you know different ways, but within the academy um, and production having a very specific kind of framework in the academy and us using par and creativity as a democratizing kind of praxis and process. So I think in the same way that we par is a democratizing methodology framework, art is too. And and we can't you kind of have to approach it in that way because of the way that we are socialized into understanding art. And you know, many people very early on decide they're not artists. In the same way, they decide they're not researchers, or you know, I'm not a math person. I'm I'm not a science person. We kind of have to engage in that same sort of deconstruction to get to that place of engagement. And I think all of us, we all also use very different modalities. I think we all kind of have a have a a love for multimodal expression um, and different forms of art and research. And I think part of that is about going with what works and being responsive to the people that we're in relationship with and using art for relationship and knowledge production that is embodied, right? So art as a process that helps us tap into deeper ways of knowing and different ways of knowing and being and relating that is about that rigorous depth of knowledge production. I think there's something too about that people get antsy about when you start saying that something is arts-based research is that they start to think, 
kind of drawing on what Amanda and Kristen have said, they take it to an extreme to be like, oh, well, it's all subjective then, so you can't possibly be doing research, right? So like there's nothing, you can't validate that deep personal experience that someone has tapped into, right? Like we can't replicate that. Like, is that reliable? Like that's just your own art making because we've been socialized to think of art as this way of tapping into something else, right? That they're like, well, can't quantify it, can't really mark that down. And so I think that the reactions that people have around, oh, that has to be subjective and I can't judge it, you know, because we're taught in schools that like, you know, you can't judge or evaluate art in the same way that we're taught in research to evaluate around really core modes of assessment. And so I think maybe the tricky part is that it points out how subjective all research is. And that's what makes people antsy, right? Because once you've revealed that like, oh, actually, it's all subjective, even the most positivist approach, even the most quantifiable approach, even the most gigantic data sets, like every single algorithm that's built by a person is built by a person. So therefore, it's subjective because it's a human. And so art, we're like a little more willing to own that. And so I would then argue that that makes our research more valuable and more reliable because we're <laughs> owning it with transparency. However, I don't think a lot of people agree with that. And they should. <laughs> I think one thing we talked about when we were editing this book was also that there's a continuum of arts-based research, just like there's a continuum of PAR projects or YPAR projects. And I think for the mm-hmm. reasons that Marit just outlined in terms of you know, people who are coming from a positivist frame or a, a, a certain paradigm that wants to see objectivity in research, that some will point to the lowest end of the continuum, like maybe a poor example or well, not a well-executed example of, say, arts-based research, and then kind of try to topple the whole category by, point, you know, using this anecdotal evidence to point out, you know, and I think that is a you know, rhetorical strategy that happens in different uh, domains. But I do think that it's relevant here because I think it's important to point to the continuum and to uh, kind of identify these criteria um, that some of us are talking um, about. Uh, And I think that's important to do, um, to talk back to those assumptions about what's rigorous and what's subjective. Yeah, I think that gets back too to our these other points about why we are interested in the intersection between YPAR and arts based work. Because back to that idea of it is about power sharing in different ways and recognizing the multiple ways that many communities have not been able to have their voices and perspectives expressed, valued, seen, heard, all those things acknowledged in conventional dominant spaces and art has long been a way where people are like yeah we're not going to do it through the written word or we're not going to do it through like this academic mode or we're going to perform things and we're going to you know dance things and we're going to create things because those stories are still important and that sense making that meaning making is still important and so why aren't we looking at that i think is part of the question that we're asking because that's there's such valuable work there that people are doing and thinking and processing and producing. 
Thank you for sharing those views. This is actually giving me a lot of ideas and answering a lot of my questions, uh, especially uh, when you talk about stories and meaning-making process. So my research is uh, with women uh, from a marginalized community. There is a marginalized community in, in South Asia, Dalits. So the lot of literature is not from the marginalized lens. So there is a lack of language. And because of which a lot of stories, in order to make meaning out of it, the language is not available. When I'm doing my analysis, I actually sometimes I draw to express. I, I never thought of making it part of my thesis, but I draw in order to express myself because there is no language. And when you, uh, uh, Mariti, when you said about the assessment and evaluation point, I was like, oh, that's my hesitation. So thank mm -hmm. you so much. I can already see how mm -hmm. this conversation is going to you know, inform a lot of our listeners who are scholars and researchers who are new and students. This actually takes us to our next question. Uh, why arts for social change? I, mean, I think one, first of all, it's always been that. So it's in the DNA of making art is that it's been used to tell the stories of who we are, who we've been, who we want to be, right? Like from the foundation, from the beginning. And so it's always been used as some form of bringing people together and shaping how we think we are, who we think we are, and who we think we will be. Um, so I think that's the first step, right? Is that it's just built in there. And I think beyond that, we can talk about all the different ways in which it allows us to have spaces for joy, for imagination, for creativity in our social movements, how it allows, how somebody earlier today was quoting Tony Cade Bambara about saying, you know, it's what, how it makes our social movements seductive, you know, how we have to bring people in, right? Then you, you turn the corner that way. As Kristen was saying, how it allows us to access other parts of ourselves. It's like all of these things are critical to social change. I wonder if I could like use this as a way to bring in, I, not so much transition out of, but bring in the piece uh, about youth, because one of the things I'm hearing you talk about is not to think about art or arts-based research as a means to an end, some other more worthy end, like policy change, but that it's it's an ends in itself, right? And I think when I was reading through some of your work and the way you talk about youth and the relationships and the spaces, I wonder if we could bring that piece in and, and talk a bit more about how are arts-based methods a really powerful way of building these relationships. I'm thinking of Margaret Kovac, who talks about relationship as action, right? And so I'm, that's one thing I was hearing echoing a bit in uh, the way you were talking about and writing about working with youth. So I, can I start off before we dive into, you know, what are some of the assumptions about youth or misconceptions that you have to work against? Can I just ask you what, when you, when you say you are working with youth, are you talking about mostly youth of a certain age? Are you working with young kids, teenagers? Uh, just to give, you know, listeners a sense of the range of um, who you work with in your own projects. I've worked with really all ages. I was an elementary school teacher initially. Um, and uh, so I worked with young, young children. Um, and now, um, more as a researcher, I've worked with teenage um, ages and 
sort of up into the 20s as a lot of times as as youth grow older but as i mentioned to begin with a lot of the work is intergenerational so there are elders and other their parents involved as well because that is actually what we see as the most impact um at the moment for instance right now i'm doing work with using theater for language reawakening with the local communities on the island there are three main languages and we do work like there was all ages involved so i wouldn't say it would just be youth um for me i've done YPAR with 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 high school students um around their community kind of just explore using photo voice to explore and define community um in a high school I have worked with young people using kind of a sociological youth studies frame um, of expanding the definition from early teens to mid twenties or kind of do self-identified people who self-identify as a young person. I come from psychology and social work where it's a very different perspective. It's a developmental stage transition kind of time. And I um, employ the, youth studies framework that Dana wrote about um, quite a lot in kind of expanding the understanding of young people. Now I'm more in intergenerational spaces spaces as well. One thing I just want to say before I, I is I feel like we're building, it's kind of exciting because I feel like we're, you know, exploring and testing out and building some ideas here about this question. Uh, even what, um, uh, even what Shika said about working with the Dilit community in South Asia, that especially, I think we talked about this a little bit in the book as well. I know I talked about it in my chapter as well, like, um, and we, and some of the other contributors and, and us as, as editors and authors, um, when people are using art to analyze social justice and injustices and to envision new ways of being, and I think we've all kind of spoken to this here in this podcast uh, around, I think sometimes it can be easier, especially when in traditional schooling, uh, oftentimes people are trained to kind of, maybe there's a little punishment or consequence to speaking up about social injustices, especially if it's about your own group or even, you know, self-advocacy, but you also in being in solidarity with others um, or intersections, you know, of different identities or injustices. I feel like there are pockets and, and these hopeful spaces, but the larger dominant paradigm oftentimes can discipline and punish students for doing that. So students kind of get used to not doing that um, or young people or people, uh, and so I do think that art can be a way to get out of that uh, analytic mind and use it as analysis, but whether it's, you know, theater or photo voice or poetry or literature, you know, whatever it is, someone said earlier, uh, one of us said that there's less of the rules that you have to conform to, or there's less of that, like, I'm not worthy or like, I'm not... Um, meeting those criteria criteria or norms, and there's more freedom to use your expression. In the book, I gave an example in the chapter around, you know, kind of using these skits, these real and ideal skits to look at what's the real situation in our community and what's the ideal situation and using kind of drawings, but also 
um, in the tradition of theater of the impressed, but like the oppressed, but skits to act that out and people to act out their personal experiences, whether it was with racialized policing or other um, experiences. I do think there's something there. I think there's something there. When I worked at a um, nonprofit intermediary, also in the Ohlone lands here in what's come to be known Oakland, um, we did cons- like uh, capacity building and technical assistance for youth-led PAR projects that were uh, alliances or projects or coalitions or networks. And I saw, for example, photo voice, you know, in schools, sometimes young people are not encouraged to talk about where they don't feel safe or respected, but they were taking pictures of where they did in their school and where they did in their neighborhoods and then where they didn't, you know, and, you know, it might be like under a stairwell or like certain places in a school or um, neighborhood where um, they didn't feel safe and then hosting an art exhibition and talking about as part of, you know, in the context of a larger YPAR project, but that those conversations, like using whatever medium, you know, it is as a way to point to um, an analysis of what could be improved, what's hurtful, or what could be um, transformed uh, in a social justice context in particular. I think art is a special and important medium for that. For that work. And especially, I do think it's been overused, like speaking truth to power, but I do think it's important for people who've been socialized, see that there's consequences when they do do that for their, not just at the individual level, but especially for their group or in solidarity with others. I think there's a little bit more voice that can be possible. Uh, there's something there, you know, that I think is interesting. I think something, Dana, that you were saying about like the, this piece about freedom, and just back to, for me, working with young people, and for me, that's usually teenagers, there's something about work doing research with them that allows me to shed some conventions of my own thinking, because I'm sharing power in this way. And so if I prioritize the power sharing, it helps me see beyond my own indoctrination about what research is meant to be. And in the same way that art does, right? So it's almost like matching up these two massive forces of like that, you know, as as Kristen was talking about from like a developmental perspective, like that moment in our lives when we're more open to possibilities, right? Plus now you add art, which forces open possibilities. So you have like a, you're working with a group of people who are primed to be a little more imaginative, a little more expansive in their thinking. Then you like, you add a little fire, a little fuel to that fire, right? So then that's when, for me, it's it's so much more exciting than the, the research that I do in other spaces where I feel more like tied down by conventions of things. So I think, Dana, your point there about it's like this intersection of maximum freedom space, right? Young people have long been people who have been at the forefront of social change, right? And movement building. Not that they're doing it alone, right? Like Angela Davis is going to tell us, they're like, no, 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 no. They're not doing it alone. They're standing on our shoulders. They can just see further, right? So they got the better vantage point because they can see beyond what we can see. And we're kind of like short in the, in the crowd. And I think that's, that's the piece for me that like this particular age group, like that particular 
time in our lives where it's like expansiveness that allows me to access that different kind of freedom and in juxtaposition to like the research in which I've been taught to do it, it allows for something different to happen. I love what I love what everyone's saying and it it makes me think too to the traditional kind of adolescent and developmental view of young people as you know it's that problem you know adolescence as a problem adolescence as as a social group to control to prevent problems right that's where we have all of the preventative science to contain and to kind of shape and mold and par and art are two very complementary approaches to turning that upside down and and kind of building on actually the beauty of resistance as a as a norm as a as an actual kind of cultural norm of that developmental phase and something that is a gift and and right it's like building on that notion of expertise and young people's expertise this resistance and kind of imagination and insight and joy, right? It's like art and identity work is a huge part of that time. And identity is also building and constructing something new, just like social change and social movements are about imagining a new world, right? It's about tapping into something that isn't, something that could be, and art is another vehicle that supports that kind of analysis and thinking and conceptualization and research and par give you a little bit of scaffolding for holding it all together. And research is art. It is creating something new. You're producing knowledge that didn't exist in that form before. Yeah, I don't know. I love it because it's also giving, giving your co-researchers permission to be truly who they are. And to tell you you're wrong. As adults working with young people, it's on us to show and build trust with young people and share power. And like, really, you know, like it takes work and it takes constant attention and negotiation to do that effectively because they'll tell you they don't trust you. I think this is probably a really nice place to pause till the next episode because I think we're always as students also being like but walk us through those methods walk us what it's like to be in that space that's intergenerational you're walking in you're doing theater people are tired and channel it into a conversation about like how you do that like what are your what are your tricks or tools what what methods have you discovered along the way what methods did you bring in through your own research um it'll be really exciting to kind of dig into the, the different methods from theater to painting, some of your writing processes. So I think it would be an exciting place maybe to pause here and come back uh, and dig into this more in our next episode. Join us next episode where we continue our conversation with Amanda, Dana, Kristen, and Marit, where we look at how art-based methods push the bar on meaningful participation with youth throughout various phases of our project. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shika DeWalker, Corey Legasic, and Vanessa Gold.